Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The murder of Sir David Amos has profoundly shocked Westminster and the country. Parliamentarians have paid moving tributes to the late Conservative MP for South End West, while questioning what it means for one of the basic roles of an MP, meeting constituents and speaking for them. We'll discuss what the awful news means for security and for our elected representatives. Politics, as usual, continues. This week, the government published three net zero documents, including the long-awaited net zero strategy. Lots of pages, lots of graphs, lots of targets. But does that improve the chances of the summit kicking off in just over a week? We'll take a look at that. And outside Parliament, the supply shortages and the energy price rises are still a problem. How worried should we be? How worried should Boris Johnson be? We'll look ahead at a winter that may not be all that content. To discuss all this, we're joined in the studio by IFG Senior Fellow Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hello. Great to have you here. Our Senior Fellow Giles Wilkes is back again. Hi, Giles. Hi there, Bonin. Great to have you. And I'm delighted to be joined again by Tim Ross, the recently appointed Executive Editor of Politics at the New Statesman. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? Hello, very well. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. You started just before the party conferences. Yes, been a busy, busy month so far. It's not going to let up, I think. Last week, Sir David Amos, an MP since 1983, was stabbed to death at an open advice surgery for his constituents in Essex. Our sympathies obviously go to his family and friends. His murder came just five years after the killing of MP Joe Cox, and it's prompted many MPs to question just how safe they are, and to weigh up the risks in holding an elected office. We're joined now as well to discuss this by Alice Lilly, IFG Senior Researcher and author of our annual Parliamentary Monitor report. Hi, Alice. Hi, Bronwyn. Alice, tell us what's happened about security in the days since Sir David's death. Well, obviously, um, aside from the, the grief and the tributes that have been expressed to Sir David, there's been a very immediate and understandable focus on actually what kinds of practical steps might be taken to try and ensure that this kind of terrible incident doesn't happen again. So we've seen the Speaker of the Commons, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, urgently start to conduct a review into MPs' security. Priti Patel announced uh, on Wednesday in the House of Commons that the uh, assessment of the Joint Terrorism Centre is now that the threat to MPs in this country is assessed to be significant. There are all sorts of potential security enhancements that are being discussed, but it's still a very active, ongoing conversation. So has anything changed already? There's not really been a huge immediate change. In the hours, the days after Sir David's killing, we saw actually MPs having to make some quite difficult decisions about whether they themselves wanted to hold their constituencies' surgeries as usual. And actually, what we've also seen is a bit of a difference of opinion among MPs. There are some who are understandably really concerned about the safety of them holding those surgeries, about whether they need enhanced security, whether they want to go ahead. We've seen other MPs who equally understandably are really um, determined to press on with the way that they go about their business. So again, it, it really is very much an ongoing conversation and there are no easy answers to any of this. That's fascinating because we've heard talk about whether police uh, might need to attend, uh, you know, stand guard over those surgeries, but nothing's happened yet. Is that right? 
That's my understanding, yes. Um, I believe that all police forces have been asked to urgently contact MPs in their local area and speak to them about concerns that they might have and potential measures that they might take. Thank you for that. Well, Tim, you're someone who's based in the Palace of Westminster. What's the mood now? Well, it's incredibly sad and clearly a lot of people are, are pretty devastated because they knew David Amos and, and obviously his his awful killing comes pretty hot on the heels of, of the, the death of James Brokenshire as well and that's affected a lot of people. Which was from cancer, that, yeah, was, from, that from was not cancer. from an act of violence. No, no, but, but the grief around the place is, yes. is palpable and frequently people are saying to us that these were two of the nicest and, and kindest parliamentarians and how awful it is. So there's that, there's that, there's the, there's the obvious grief at, at those, those losses. And, and then the shock and the fear. And I, and we've done an interview. I, I met Jay, um, Robert Buckland, in fact, this week for the magazine, and he's given us a long, a long interview and he is not alone, but he's very clear that he's been considering whether he can carry on, whether he should quit politics actually, uh, because he just doesn't feel safe. And and I think his concerns are about himself, about his family, about his staff, and about his constituents who will be meeting him in, in those surgeries. Ultimately, he, he imagines he will carry on, um, but it's certainly the case that it's given him a very serious reason to, to think about his own future. I was going to ask you whether there was a danger that people will be put off standing for Parliament. And from what you're saying from what MPs are now feeling? The answer is yes. I think clearly, and and, and it's not simply about the safety it, um, from from awful atrocities such as this one. It's also the tone and the tenor of debate and the abuse that, that people receive online and whether or not really, I mean, I, I have a question, whether the country itself really values democracy enough. I think that's a, that's a, a pretty serious issue. Do we care enough to protect our elected representatives effectively? Do we care enough about the work they do to treat them with with even the sort of basic levels of respect and that that they they deserve um, these are difficult questions for a lot of people they absolutely are is it your sense that things have deteriorated in the last in recent years in terms of the language used towards politicians the kind of hostility and so on i think so and i think the brexit debates really made that just intensified that atmosphere of aggression and and stoked divisions. Uh, it was it was clearly a difficult time to be in Parliament. Again, Robert Buckland talks to us a little bit about his time. Then he was right had a ringside seat really all the way through that and was right at the heart of those Brexit battles in the twenty seventeen to nineteen Parliament. Um, and there were times he he reflects that he wanted just to scream, and he lost some friends on the Remain side because they felt that he was. Uh, to he was backing any sort of a Brexit and that wasn't really good enough for them and obviously a lot of Brexiteers felt he was arguing for a softer exit and that and 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 he was caught in the middle really he 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 says um has it got worse I, I feel like it's not in a healthy place and really it's incumbent on politicians across the across the parties to be responsible and take stock now and and make a real effort to do things differently I think Giles and Jill, you both worked in the heart of government for a time. Was this something you thought about, about security, about the threats? Um, I personally didn't think about it very much because what would happen, remarkably in our political system, working for a Secretary of State like uh, Vince Cable, for whom I had the pleasure of working from 2010 to 2014, he would do the full-on job as a Secretary of State from Saturday to Thursday, and then on Friday... He would be there pretty much alone in his constituency office with his constituency team. 
And you just took it for granted that this would happen. The same man you might be meeting, you know, the, the Treasury Secretary from the United States on Tuesday would be meeting ordinary constituents on Friday. And occasionally problems would happen, like journalistic stings or um, other people going through the bins around there. But on the whole, you kept them separate. And it was just a remarkable feature of our system that you have this sort of groundedness in ordinary life going on all the time. And Jill, what about you? It's very, very interesting. One of the things that has always surprised me, surprised me when I first worked in private office um, decades ago, was that even very, very senior cabinet ministers don't get protection. I remember very early on in my um, time working for the Chancellor of the Exchequer, he was coming down on a sleeper train from Scotland and his trousers were stolen from his sleeper carriage uh, because he'd not locked the door. And there were reports in the press that um, that he'd been met at the station by his driver slash bodyguard. And I remember at the time uh, that the principal private secretary was quite keen that people got the impression that the Chancellor had a driver bodyguard, because he certainly didn't have anyone who was a bodyguard. And one of the great things, if you like, about the UK system seen a bit of it um, more recently sort of on the sort of Blair Brown documentaries is yeah with a chancellor you could be walking up and down Whitehall and people would just come and talk to you um you hope in a friendly way but we saw with Michael Gove earlier in this week uh when he was walking back to his office not necessarily that so we give people very little protection we have depended on this accessibility and one of the questions is that when they're in the constituencies, it might be possible to make special arrangements for constituency surgeries. But most constituency MPs, you know, they're going to schools to do an opening, they're at fates, they're at duck races and things like that, all that sort of normal constituency life. And it's really quite difficult to see unless we give them all 24-hour bodyguards like we give one or two members of the cabinet that you can provide decent levels of protection for someone who's absolutely determined to get them. I think that's a real problem. And as Matthew Paris was saying in the Times, I mean, part of the shock is just what it does to this very close connection between MPs and their constituents. Many MPs absolutely pride themselves not on a cabinet career, but on getting out there among their constituents and understanding what they feel. What, what about other ways of trying to do something about it? What about the social media companies and whether they are responsible for some of this inflaming of language. Um, any of you, maybe have a view on this? Well, it's very interesting, I thought, the way in which Keir Starmer decided to make that big issue. I think picking up on something Marc Francois had said in the tributes to David Amos, that he decided to, to go on the online harms bill and getting the government to bring forward legislation. It does seem that Twitter, and particularly as People remarked many times before that some of these social media fora are particularly toxic for women and that women MPs have faced barrages of abuse. And some of those are do appear to be specific and actionable threats. So I think there is a question about whether we big tech companies should not adopt more responsibility. That's obviously the government's going to be looking at that in its online harms legislation as to whether they move to take responsibility for the content and not just say that they're offering a platform and it's not very much to do with them. And they are incredibly slow at taking deeply abusive things back. But Tim was mentioning earlier the Brexit debate. And of course, during the Brexit debate, we had both Theresa May and Boris Johnson at various points when Parliament appeared to be getting in the way 
of uh, either Theresa May's version of Brexit or Boris Johnson's version of Brexit, of demonising parliamentarians and saying that they were getting in the way of the will of the people. So I do think that political leaders in the wake of these events need to say, well, if you're expecting the public to treat MPs with respect and value the jobs that they do, then it absolutely has to start with the top from the top and that prime ministers should not indulge in that sort of parliament bashing. Yeah, Tim, what do you think? I think that's a fair point. I also think on the tech giants point, let's be honest, they're profiting, these companies, from the abuse directed at MPs on social media. Why should they not be regulated in the same way that other publishers, such as magazine publishers, are regulated? Are they platforms? Are they publishers? I mean, I think all this really needs to be looked at in, in a great deal uh, more detail and in a much more focused way. I would say that we need to get get tough on the tech giants and, and that can't really happen too soon. Clearly also the politicians at every level need to take responsibility for what they say. And Alice, what about trying to do something about tackling the threats, whether it's the language or the actual threats out there in the community? So there are really three things that can be done and, and three sets of conversations that I think it's worth having. The first of those is purely around practical steps that might be taken. Over the last week, we've seen that the Home Secretary and the Speaker of the Commons have conducted a review into MPs' security arrangements. They have now written to all MPs saying that they will be able to have security guards attend their constituency surgeries in future if that is something that they think would be helpful. But it's likely that we will continue to see further um, discussion of potential practical steps. So that's one thing. I think the second thing is a much broader conversation about the culture of threats and of abuse that MPs across the political spectrum face. We've seen some discussion of that already over the last week, but that's really involves thinking about all sorts of different issues, be that the role of social media um, and the big online tech companies, be that the um, discussions about how politicians refer to each other, the kind of tone of public debate, um, the language that all of us use, that is also a really important set of conversations to have. And then finally, the third thing that I think it's worth reflecting on, and it's something that I think is worth all of us reflecting on. And that is actually how we view the role of parliament, how we view what our MPs, our elected representatives actually do, because it's very easy to be cynical about what happens in parliament. And that's something that often we see whenever anybody talks about parliament. But actually, it is worth reflecting on the fact that there is an awful lot of good that happens within parliament. There is an awful lot of valuable work that happens there. We don't always see it necessarily, but it does exist. And actually, the vast majority of people who go into politics, who go into parliament, who go into public service, are fundamentally decent, committed people who want to try and help others. And perhaps that is something that we all just need to take a bit of a step back and remember. Well, Alice, thank you for pulling that together so beautifully at the end on this sad and, as we've all agreed, very difficult uh, set of questions. Thanks very much indeed for being with us. Thank you, Bronwyn. Right. Well, Parliament paused to remember Sir David on Monday, but as a committed parliamentarian, 
Uh, he would have wanted politics to continue as usual, and it did. On Tuesday, after much delay, much briefing, Net Zero dominated everything with a flurry of government documents ahead of the start of the COP26 summit in Glasgow on November the 1st, which is not very far away. Jill, what are all these documents? Immense amount of paper dump by the government uh, that we saw on Tuesday. But if you look at the critical documents, we have a 370-page net zero strategy, which pulls all the strands together of what the government's proposing to do uh, across the various sort of sectors that they need to decarbonize to meet the government's net zero commitment. We have a specific strategy that has been in the works for really a long time on heat and buildings. And we finally, finally, finally saw the Treasury's net zero review that was promised um, for the spring originally, but which had also been delayed. I mean, but then we also got a huge number, and I'm going to say now, I have not been through all of these, a huge number of backup documents. So quite often the Institute for Government complains that the government doesn't make its evidence base clear for policy decisions. I have never seen a government document with so many end notes as the net zero strategy. So they're certainly winning prizes on uh, at least telling us where they get their sort of information from. And what are they saying in this? I'm not going to quiz you on all the end notes, but well done for getting that, getting that far. But what, you know, what are the key points that they're making in this? So the key thing that they've done is they've sort of risen, if you like, to the challenge that the Climate Change Committee set, which has said rather than have these strategies produced before, which are a bit of a sort of hodgepodge of random activities that you will make some progress towards the government's climate change targets. The government this time has actually sort of worked back from where it wants to be on each of the key sectors with emissions. So from transport, from heat and buildings, from the power sector, uh, from fuel and supply, bit of an emphasis on making up the numbers through what they call greenhouse gas removals. So they've worked back to say, well, what are the measures that will set us on the pathway to, to to where we need to be by the end of our sixth carbon budget, 2035, and where we need to be to 2050. So they've, at various degrees of precision, I think, started to flesh out and bring together those strategies. Uh, What they make quite a lot of is this needs to be a systems approach. We even have a a systems diagram uh, in the document about uh, introducing electric vehicles and all the interlinkages. So they're sort of setting out, these are the sorts of things we're going to do. Some question marks over it. One, I think, is the level to which they depend on technology bets uh, to meet some of these, and particularly when you look at some of the risks around timing of those for example, you know, nuclear, how quickly will that come on? Replacement nuclear, small modular nuclear. Uh, so questions, I think, about technology bets, extreme reluctance to confront any sort of demand management, big question marks about the rather limited scale of public funding they're making available, and thus a huge dependence on mobilisation of private cash to do this. Then the Treasury document, which was supposed to be setting out uh, how you would pay for this and where the costs might fall, is notably reluctant to uh, say anything particularly concrete about costs at household level. Instead, it points to the fact that household circumstances are incredibly different depending on where you live, how you heat your home, 
how you travel, etc. So the Treasury doesn't give us a sort of distributional analysis of where those costs might fall. Really interesting. And I, I just wanted to say, because earlier this week, you published this a terrific IFG paper calling for Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, to set out a tax strategy to help with the transition to net zero. And I just I wanted to know in all this whether you felt that there was any more uh, that had come out that supported that. So there's a little bit here. We have um, the indications both in the Treasury Review and in the Net Zero Strategy that the government is quite keen to extend carbon pricing, but not through a carbon tax, but through an expansion of the UK emissions trading scheme. Currently covers about 30% of emissions. They want to extend it further. And the EU is doing the same to its emissions trading scheme. So more carbon pricing. Treasury says those revenues, I think this is sensible, will be used to help fund the costs of transition rather than form part of the permanent tax system. As we pointed out in our net zero strategy, the Treasury also admits that uh, its revenues, particularly from fuel duties, which is quite a big slug of the public finances, will fall off a cliff uh, as the car fleet becomes uh, electric. And finally, there is a call for evidence on what they call fair and affordable taxation of energy, which they admit they admit this much more clearly in the uh, big net zero strategy that they have to rebalance the tax treatment of electricity, uh, which is much more favourably taxed than gas at the moment, and that sends the wrong synchrodons. But clearly, they've decided that the time is not ripe for going full out on that against the backdrop of rising energy prices. Well, thank you for that, Giles. What do you make of all this? It's the most. Phenomenal volume of documents to try to absorb. And so it's difficult to give a single snapshot response. But what I mean, it's testimony to how seriously this government is taking this agenda. Net zero, um, when we passed the law for it little more than two years ago, we didn't know whether we would get future governments to take it very seriously. We thought the costs of this are, are yet to be known. This is a, an example of putting a target out there and then saying, then we're going to do all the work on it. This is a, a lot of the work. You'll get criticism from the Green Lobby, from Greta Thunberg's wing of it, that, oh, this is nothing like enough, so much talk, Where, where's your action? But as far as I see, there's really significant progress here. A good example given there by Jill about rebalancing the tax system on gas. That's a really quite politically brave thing to be doing right now, particularly in light of um, the recent spiking in the gas price. If you wanted to attack a government for being sort of tin-eared, why are you looking at taxing gas even higher as our household bills are going through the roof? It would be a really easy line to take. So there's admirable examples that this government is taking it extremely seriously. Of course, they're not going the whole way. You can't expect them to, for example, announce financing that would pay for 600,000 heat pumps to be installed a year. What they have to do as a government is explore what they need to do, what market mechanisms work, ramp them up, look for where the private sector is going to be able to contribute or not. It's very much more iterative than the sort of grand green dealers think that it should be. And from that point of view, I think there's real progress and it's going to help make COP slightly easier for the Prime Minister in the next couple of weeks. That presumably is the intention um, uh, and other things off stage are not making it quite so easy, particularly where China and even the US are. Tim, how tricky is this politically for Boris Johnson? Because anything that pushes up household bills, let alone at a point when energy prices are already very high, is, is just not going to be a vote winner, is it? 
it's not going to be a vote winner, but luckily there's no imminent prospect of a vote. So, you know, he's he's all right on that for a bit. Clearly, the government had to do something ahead of COP. And what they've done is publish hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of quite detailed policy. But it is difficult, as you say. And it's not just difficult in terms of the consumer point with people facing those higher bills, as you rightly, everyone was pointing out, but also internally within the Conservative Party, there's an awful lot of resistance that's becoming harder to the green agenda, actually. And it's particularly the impact when you when you combine it with the those consumer bills, but the impact on on the economy of some of, of some of these policies. Certainly we've we've heard a lot from people like Steve Baker, who's critical of the government's green agenda, and he's obviously been a pretty influential campaigner over the years, certainly on Brexit issues. And his point really is that the, the choice facing the government is whether to pursue socialist sort of policies that involve a lot of state intervention, which he sees as a failure, uh, or to uh, make sure that the, that the market can function properly and allow uh, that to solve the issue so that people are prosperous and warm. He thinks that the alternative is to be poorer and colder. Very well put. Is there room for Labour here? Well, this is again, again, sort of the, the challenge really for Keir Starmer uh, is to insert himself into this debate. What would Labour do differently? The Conservatives have put out quite a lot of detail and ambition in in some of these policies, but but where is Labour on it? And it's certainly another area where it it, it is a struggle for the opposition to insert itself into mm-hmm. the debate, particularly when you have a lot of blue on blue action. Jill, um, I'm not going to hold you to it, but what are the expectations for COP26? Well, at the moment. Uh... It's not looking totally brilliant um, because, as the Queen remarked, uh, I think last week, uh, we're hearing a lot more about people who aren't turning up than the people who are. I mean, the government now and why it's got the strategy out can say not only do we have world-beating institutional governance for climate change, which actually the government does have uh, and the UK's uh, architecture has been copied elsewhere, we have set out a strategy and we have set out a comprehensive document, which is at least, you know, setting out the start of a roadmap to get there and challenge other people to do the like. But the COP really, really depends on what can they do about commitments, commitments to early action, not sort of net zero targets by uh, the middle or beyond of the decade. What can they get out of the U.S.? where positive noises, but we've seen President Biden is heading into problems in Congress with his big package out of China. Vladimir Putin's not coming, going to join virtually from Russia. Russia's been a holdout. So it's really sort of difficult to see where is this going to land. Quite a lot of sort of sniping between people about whether the Prime Minister's done enough rumours of um, disputes between Alok Sharma, the president of the COP, and the Boris Johnson team about who is doing enough, whether expectations have been overinflated in the run-up, and whether people really understand what this is about, which is about actually trying to sort of mobilise around getting people to commit to actions, which, uh, in the words of Allegra Stratton speaking at the Institute of Government last week, would keep 1.5 degrees alive as a climate change objective. I mean, the government set itself, um, she set out there sort of four big Areas that they're uh, they're keen on phase out of coal, mobilisation of cash, action on cars, and then uh, tree planting. So the government will be very keen to be able to point to very significant progress on all of those. 
But at the moment, there's a really interesting question about whether they've done enough of the diplomatic heavy lifting that they needed to do. And the short run, quite a lot of the eyes will be whether there's any sort of momentum comes out of the G20 that is about to meet on that. But at the moment, it's not, it's looking um, as though this is not going very fast. And the past couple of months have seemed to go backwards rather than forwards. After in, t- in terms of the diplomacy, as you're, as you're saying. So we might have the interesting thing that the UK has not done enough of that international footwork. And anyway, those forces are huge ones. Um, but it has actually done quite a bit at home. It has done quite a bit of home, but um, but back in September, I think they were quite uh, quite sort of buoyed up by the UN General Assembly, the announcement by President Xi from China that China is going to end uh, financing coal-fired power stations abroad. But then if you look, one of the Chinese reactions to the energy price uh, spikes has been to announce there's going to build more coal-fired capacity within China. So it's why, you know, why things look as though they've sort of taken a bit of a backward step. But you never know until, until they all get there. So something something may yet emerge, and there's obviously enormous pressures at the last minute. Well, let's set COP26 aside and turn to our, our third, our final topic, which is back in the UK, not a million miles away in subject terms, and that's the trickiness of this winter with the shortages and all that, that, that comes with that. Tim, you wrote a great cover piece for the New Statesman this week, warning that Boris Johnson could be facing what you called a perfect storm as lots of problems pile up. What, what was the main point you were making? Well, interesting. I mean, perfect storm wasn't my phrase. It was actually a minister who said that. So there wasn't, there's was no one single problem. Brilliant headline that is now overused. So, all right, I'm not going to hold you. Well, that, <laughs> uh, it was a quote. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and the point the minister was making was that it, it's not, it's not just one problem. It's an extraordinary array of crises combining to put huge pressure on the economy and on the institutions of the state. You've got food supplies, the food processing sector short of workers, the HGV shortages, factories potentially facing trouble because the gas price is so high they can't keep running, making ceramics and glass. Uh, the courts backlog has reached record levels in the in the Crown Courts with 60,000 cases awaiting trial. Farmers are struggling. Hospitals are under pressure with an enormous you know, backlog of nearly 6 million procedures. And, and so it goes on, restaurant chains. I mean, it's even before you start contemplating a resurgent coronavirus, in in the community and what that might mean it's looking like a very difficult winter and i think if you look ahead further to spring that's not going to be particularly pleasant for government communications teams either because you have the tax rise coming in to pay for the nhs and social care that national insurance uh, increase comes in in april and around about the same time the new energy price cap will be set too so to be honest it's an awful lot of pain for consumers add in some inflation, and you've got to say that it's a very difficult sell for the government. And you've said that the Conservative Party itself could be at war. What did you mean by that? Well, I think, put bluntly, we've got a budget coming up and a spending review coming up, and there will be an awful lot of debate internally within the party about exactly what the right course is for Rishi Sunak to take. Well, on the one hand, you've, you you have the uh, the sort of Osborneite tendency to sort of which Sunak has, has has talked a lot about and he mentioned in his conference speech to to try to balance the books to try to get the uh, public finances back on a sustainable path fiscal responsibility is a conservative uh, value according to Sunak against that you have Boris Johnson who is very willing to spend big on his pet projects and somewhere in the middle you have MPs who are 
who are trying to work out what you know how to save their seats and particularly in red wall areas the imperative to cut taxes to keep the costs of the state down is very strong and i think it's going to be a potential big battle ahead really for the conservatives Charles, do you think that there is this ideological split in the Conservatives between those who favour big government, lots of intervention uh, in markets all over the place, and those who, to quote Steve Baker from Tim's piece, say that uh, Johnson needs to be getting government out of the way? Whenever people ask me about the ideology of Tory MPs, I remember a very wise uh, former advisor to Conservative ministers when I asked him, what's their ideological view on austerity? Um, do they think it's good or bad for the economy? He said, most Tory MPs don't believe anything about anything like this. They don't have like some set of Hayek or Milton Friedman style things that they get trained in before they go into politics. They mostly, he joked, said they have really strong views about IPSA, the parliamentary body for monitoring expenses. And otherwise, they just take the lead and see who's sort of doing well. Come on, it, it feels a bit cynical, though. I, I mean, to say all they care about is their, 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 their expenses. But you do... You do have people like Steve Baker, who's certainly ideological, saying, look, get government out of the way, and you've got a prime minister who wants to spend lots of money. But yeah, Yes, you do, but you can name them often. The same names keep coming up when you say, well, who, who has a really strong particular view on a particular economic thing? And it's Steve Baker, Elizabeth Truss, I'd name Liam Fox as well. But mostly people, uh, like normal voters, are... Um, in two minds about what really works and are willing to give somebody who's got political force behind them a chance at it if it, th- it looks like it's going to work. So um, a tax rise to fund something that people generally agree is a good idea, like social care, they'll say, well, that seems that sort of makes sense. And I think this is mostly a quite an admirable quality. You don't want um, 300 sort of would-be academics sitting there judging everything like that. They're meant to be representing their voters. I, I think there's mostly of a pragmatic view in the Tory party that will say, pursue your policy. And if it's not working, I'm going to get really cross. And the trouble with the situations right now isn't that it's crossing some ideological line. It's that it's not working. The problem right now is most things that go wrong in economics, they happen far away in the world of statistics. You get a statement from the ONS that GDP fell and the minister looking embarrassed, explaining why it's not really a recession, that sort of thing. When you're looking at shortages and queues and things that you want to get, you can't get the actual economy seeming to freeze up, that cuts through to a degree that you don't normally see outside a really stiff recession or a major embarrassment like Black Wednesday almost 30 years ago. And that's why I think it's quite serious for the government that normally there's a disconnect and there's an opportunity to spin, but you can't spin shortages as a great idea. We saw that attempt at the conference where you said, well, actually, it's all part of a clever plan to sort of increase the scarcity of British workers and give them a fairer crack of the whip. And It really falls to pieces on closer examination and leaves many more losers than winners. Most of us are not sitting around getting large wage rises because of a shortage in our occupation. It's almost logically impossible for that to happen to everyone, particularly people who are reliant on benefits, as Tim's story makes clear, and public sector workers. And so the data is already in showing that people are not mostly receiving above inflation pay rises. So you have a lot of losers and a few really tight industries where people are working their socks off and are are getting pay rises. That is just not a well-run economy. And you've been doing some work for us on shortages. How much is Brexit to blame? Well, this is a really difficult question because it is absolutely fair to say that this is a global issue going on 
everywhere, from the ports of Los Angeles and Shanghai to sort of mines that can't find the, the right equipment or produce the right commodities, container shipping going through the roof in prices, individual stories everywhere. Brexit is like, um, it, it, it's a step in the wrong direction in terms of the sorts of measures you want. When you're in this sort of situation, you want to open your markets, reduce restrictions, basically shop as widely as you can. And Brexit so far has been steps in all the opposite directions. So it is a policy movement that doesn't help. D- disaggregating its effect from all the other stuff is really, really hard, particularly with COVID and the pandemic. But you can see it. Let me let me ask Jill there, uh, who's done a vast amount of work on Brexit. Um, Jill, your, your view on the Brexit role in these shortages? Well, I think it's one of the interesting things. Um, we've just done some work elsewhere on is it Brexit, is it COVID? And on most areas, it's a sort of Brexit magnified by COVID, a bit of each, because as Giles says, there's lots of things going on in the economy. I think Brexit has done various things. Clearly, Brexit by ending free movement has required quite a big adjustment in the labour market, which had come to assume that it could fill short, fill vacancies quite easily just by attracting in workers from Eastern Europe. Now, whether they would have been able to go on doing that, so I think a bit of a moot point, because the Migration Advisory Committee, the government's official advisors on migration, had said uh, actually that was the tide was beginning to turn shortly after the Brexit vote anyway, as it was more attractive to stay in Eastern Europe relative to coming over here. So it wasn't clear that that uh, magnetic force of the UK labour market would go on in quite the same way at current rates. But I think what Brexit has done quite badly, and I think this we are seeing some of those effects here, is government and business sort of refuse to talk to each other because government... Uh, Government took the view that business was complaining too much about the effects that Brexit would have on it. And it's sort of been a bit of a sort of dialogue of the death that where businesses have been warning about some of these supply chain issues uh, from much earlier in the year, government, I think, was just sort of saying, well, you know, we've had some quite anti-business language about there being mainlining on imported labour and we've got to sort of, you know, make them go cold turkey and force them to do other things. So I think the sort of pragmatic solutions you might have been trying to come up with have been excluded by that breakdown in the government business relationship, which Brexit has caused. Really important point. Tim, we've got the spending review in the budget next week. What do you think we're going to learn? Well, we'll, we'll learn to the extent to which um, Richie Sunak has is prepared to beat George Osborne, I suppose. I mean, will we get austerity? Will there be big tax rises? Will there be some kind of comfort for MPs like Ben Bradley, who told us that it really that spending review is the moment not to hit his voters in the pocket? Um, I think that's the main the main thing. Obviously, we have the spending review, which is which will give three year settlements to Whitehall departments. Who are the winners and losers there? I think it's going to be very interesting to see on things like the the uh, the, the budgets for justice and for and and for other areas in terms of the COVID recovery. Just picking up on the point about the business versus the government battle as well, you can see that in inside the cabinet. I mean, the business secretary and the chancellor have, have been not in not a very secret dispute recently over what sort of support they can offer to, to businesses such as the ceramic makers and the glass makers who are struggling. So if you believe those briefings, and, and I've had a few, so I do, it's, not, it's certainly not a happy ship at the top. 
And Charles, we, we published our annual performance tracker report this week, and that laid bare that a lot of the backlogs in public services caused by the pandemic and the amount of money needed just to get back to where we were. Sunak's got his fiscal rules. Do you think he's going to have to break them? Do you think he will break them in order to save public services? It's a confused picture because some of the data that's coming out, including like today on the public borrowing figures themselves, is relatively good, which enables Sunak to have a choice as to what to do with some leeway. The trouble is, of course, the economic picture is changing really fast. And in particular, the medium term one that the Office for Budget Responsibility needs to make about the speed limit of the economy, when it will stop catching up and effectively be done. You've got to think that's going to be changing a lot in the light of the shortages and all the recent sort of capacity problems. But I personally think he will have room to do more on public spending. But he'll be so worried about the the more distant medium term and perhaps more narrowly about trying to find room for tax cuts ahead of the election that I don't think he will necessarily be very generous because once you bake in spending rises, they're very hard to take out again. I, I totally agree with the judgment of that that monitor, though. The um, you can't uh, you can't put up with a low level of public sector performance for a long time. But the Treasury's way is always to give slightly less than they that you than you think you need and sort of try to encourage you to try harder and. It's going to be extremely difficult, particularly if the public sector departments are suffering from the same labour problems as the rest of the economy seems to. It's, but So I think a little generosity from him, no need to break the fiscal rules, but the public sector is still under quite significant pressure. Well, thank you for that. That's it, I'm afraid, for this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Jill Rutter, Giles Wilkes, Alice Lilly, and especially to Tim Ross. And thanks for listening at home. More obviously to come next week with a budget and spending review. If you like this podcast, then check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We launched our performance tracker that we've just been talking about, the great panel discussion. Do listen. You can reach all our podcasts at Acast, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. Do leave us a review. We always ask that. We always like them. And you can find more of our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk, including that performance tracker report and Jill's net zero paper and more from Giles. It could be a tricky winter, but there will be no shortage of inside briefing to keep you company. See you next week.